Uh, the first thing I'd like to do is uh, start our evening with a prayer and uh, remember that we are in the presence of God and that all of this is for His glory. So, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a reading from Ephesians 4, 22-25. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Lord Jesus, help us to resist all temptations that keep us from speaking the, tr the whole truth with our mouths, minds, hearts, and bodies. Make us strong in your grace so that we can be honest in word and deed with pure hearts that follow after you. Mary Magdalene, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the first thing I'd like to do is actually just show you a um, short video clip. This is from a great movie. It's called Life is Beautiful. Um, and what I want you to do is just pay close attention to the, um, the body language of the people in the film. And then after that, I will be asking you guys some questions. So make sure you're paying attention. Um, also, it is, uh, it's in Italian. Um, but there are subtitles for your, uh, for your benefit. So we're going to go ahead and watch that here first. Terza elementare. Ascoltate questo problema. Me lo ricordo perché mi ha colpito. Problema. Un pazzo costa allo Stato 4 marchi al giorno. Uno storpio, 4 marchi e mezzo. Have any of you seen that movie? Okay, a few of you. Um, the reason I showed that clip uh, well, there's many reasons, and I'll try to ask you guys what those reasons are. But the, as you saw, the one gentleman, Guido, who was the waiter, he was in love with Dora, the woman who was engaged to another man. Um, and so this entire time, he's trying to, uh, in many ways, get her attention. But can anybody tell me, like, what was some of the language, just by their bodies, that they were speaking in that, that clip right there. For those of you that were at Theology of the Body training, you can't uh, answer this. Just kidding. What, what was some of the language that was being spoken? She was reluctant. Dora was reluctant. Reluctant to what? She didn't want to dance. Yeah. Did you, I mean, he, her body was like being drugged out there on the floor to go and dance with the guy she was engaged to. What else? Has nobody been in love in this room? Come on. What happened when she crawled underneath the table? What happened when she crawled underneath the table? You guys are a really hard crowd. Yeah. She came alive. Yeah. Her whole face lit up because she saw this man who she was in love with, very much so. Exactly like my wife was when she saw me for the first time. <laughs> We're not going to get into that tonight. The reason I showed you that, and I would encourage you to actually watch this movie, um, it's, a, it's a very serious movie, but there's obviously a lot of comical parts in it. Um, but it really speaks about the language of our body not just how we act physically or sexually, but our mannerisms, what we do, how we react to other people. And this is, is uh, very foundational in understanding Pope John Paul II's theology of the body. And that's what I'd like to talk to you tonight about, is basically our personhood in light of our body, who we are created to be. Theology of the body is the Catholic Church's most critical efforts in modern times to help the world become more conscious of the mystery and the reality of the Incarnation. That was a lot right there. 
But basically, it's the Catholic Church teaching us about the Incarnation, Christ becoming flesh. It was not just something insignificant. It was incredibly significant. So significant that through it, we also understand the very purpose of ourselves as human beings. The purpose and the meaning of our life. But to understand theology of the body, to understand ourselves, we must begin with the book of Genesis. And tonight I will spare you reading both salvation stories, but I would like to pick up just on a few here. First off, there are two creation stories here, Genesis uh, 1 and then Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, I'll briefly recount everything, or not everything, but just the creation of, of man. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air. No, no. Okay. And then in Genesis 2, we have the next creation story. And this is how it goes. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. I'm going to skip over now to the creation of woman. The man gave names to all cattle, and to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's on now. There is um, so much to both of those stories. As I was preparing for this talk, I became completely overwhelmed. I was like, I have no idea where to start or end or anything. I just wanted to hand you this book and say it's a night. Um, but basically, in the first story, we see that we are created in the very image and likeness of God. We bear a stamp or a gift from God in how we were, we were created. We were created like no other. And we were given a gift like no other. In Genesis 2, in this creation story, we become a subject of a covenant with God. A subject of a covenant with God. Basically what this says is we were meant to partner with God. Among all living creatures, only man 
have been chosen, and when I mean man, I mean all of us, male and female. Among all living creatures, only man had been chosen for communion with God. What does that tell us about who we are? Or what should it tell us about who we are? Every human person has a unique, exclusive, unrepeatable relationship with God. I love that. Each human person has a unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God. Nobody else will have a relationship with God like you do. Nobody. In these creation stories, we see that man is not just spirit, nor is he just flesh, but he is a physical being formed from the dust of the ground, as Pope John Paul II says, a body among bodies. God didn't insert a soul into a body. Adam was a unified being. He was both body and soul. He participates in the visible world through his body. He recognizes, as he's naming all of the animals, he recognizes through his body that he is a person. Because he looks at all the other animals, and none of them are suited to be his helper until he sees the woman. Her body speaks of who she is, who she was created to be, as well as Adam's body speaks the same thing to himself. Adam did not conclude that he was an animal. Therefore, at the very beginning, he concluded that he was alone, because he looked at all the animals, and there was nobody like him. So he was alone. I love how God understands us so much that even in the creation of us, he realizes that we, are, or maybe not realizes, he knows that we are made to be in communion with one another. God makes woman the woman, so Adam is not alone. So in many ways, Adam also represents a certain sense of solitude that his body is meant to be in communion with another. And he is not whole until that woman is created, until God brings about Eve. When Eve is created, Adam understands that man and woman are alike, yet different in complementary ways. And the beautiful thing is all of this is revealed by the language of their body not by any spoken words, but just by the very beauty of their own body, that God created them, and that they saw one another, and they realized they complemented one another. What a beautiful gift God has given us in that. The body reveals the person. Our bodies are sacramental in that they make the invisible visible. They give visible form to our inner life. I'll repeat that again. They give visible form to our inner life. I think uh, one of the reasons I have such a passion for this is because of our worldview, because of our culture, and how so many people now are living their inner lives outside through their bodies. Whether that is through clothing, excessive makeup, um, reconstructive surgery, uh, pornography, masturbation, or living a life of, of virtue, of chastity, of modesty. Our bodies reflect what's going on inside of us in many ways. And also to remember, too, up to this very point, the only thing that Adam and Eve knew was life. 
They had no sense of death whatsoever. And then in Genesis 2.16, God says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall die. How could Adam understand the concept of death here? His body only spoke of life. He still had the preternatural gifts. His body would not decay. He would not die. The word die appears before actually any experience of it whatsoever. It appears as the total opposite of all that Adam had been given. Do we understand that in our own lives? What death is? Again, we look at the culture within which we live. How many people really understand what death is? And I don't necessarily mean just by the physical, our physical death, but by our very actions, by what we do. Adam realizes that life is dependent on God. I love this. God breathed life into Adam. Think about the intimacy right there. God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, and he was brought to life. The breath still belongs to God. Again, we are not our own. We are God's. At this moment, when God is speaking to Adam about the choice of the tree of good and evil, the choice between death and immorality become part of what it means to be human. Our choices speak of who we are. Our bodies are a gift, a gift to be used as a means for our sanctification, as well as those for the sanctification of others. Freedom lies at the heart of this gift. Freedom to be able to give ourselves to another. The human body, with its sexuality, male and female, is not only a source of fruitfulness and procreation, it also has the power to express love, allowing the person to become a gift. This self-giving love is unique to human beings and to human beings alone. Other living creatures can reproduce, but they don't love each other in the image of God's love. Again, this is where we see our worldview incredibly screwed up. I read recently that there was a book um, by, uh, they call it, I think it's like Redefining Catholicism or something like that, or the New Catholicism. And they basically go and they quote all these people who have actually left the Catholic Church. One of which I was very surprised, I had no idea, was Chevy Chase. And in this book, Chevy Chase goes so far as to refute all of the church's teachings on things such as homosexuality, um, masturbation, pornography, um, and says basically that man should be able to be free to do these things and the Catholic Church is just behind the times. And then he goes so far as to even speak about, um, and I'm going to be graphic here, but basically bestiality, and how if an animal was free to be able to choose to do this action with a human, that he thinks that that should be okay. This is the worldview in which many of us live. And part of the reason why this is dear to me is because these are, in many ways, who our kids look up to as heroes. 
And so they look at what they say as being gospel truth. So many we see in our day and age wonder, who am I? Where am I? Where am I going? The answer is only found in self-giving. In a self-sacrificial giving of love. Happiness is the fruit of love. Man was happy in the beginning because he was created by love for love, to give love in return. What I'd like to do now is uh, I'm going to read from uh, JP2's Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. This is the new uh, translation by Michael Waldstein. I believe that's how you say his name right, Chris? Um, And he offers some great insights in here. There was uh, many things that he found in his research as well. But this is what he has to say about the sexual revolution and happiness. Again, we just said happiness was found or is a fruit of love. Listen to what he has to say is happiness. The sexual revolution was heralded by its advocates as a breakthrough for human development, for the freedom and happiness of the person. Wilhelm Reich, a student of Freud who saw himself at the forefront of the revolution, believed that the free availability of sexual pleasure beyond the limits imposed by the patriarchal Christian family would lead to health and happiness. It would even prevent insanity, mysticism, and war. And this is a a quote from him, from Reich. Sexual energy is the constructive biological energy of the psychological apparatus that forms the structure of human feeling and thinking. Sexuality is the productive, vital energy, simply speaking. Its suppression leads not only to medical damage, but also, quite generally, to damage in the basic functions of life. The essential social expression of this damage is purposeless action by human beings. Their insanity, their mysticism, their readiness for war, etc. The core of life's happiness is sexual happiness. That comes from the sexual revolution. So basically our happiness should be derived, as this gentleman is saying, from sexual gratification. This is completely contradictory to the notion of self, uh, of sacrificial love. I almost said self-love. That would have been not good. When the gift-giving meaning of the body is obscured or disorientated, we become a lie or a contradiction. No longer are we able to answer the question of who I am or where I'm going because it becomes completely about ourself. In other words, our bodies are capable of either speaking truths or lies. exactly what it showed in this film tonight in a very subtle way. Dora, sitting there, was very stoic. Her body was completely rigid. When she was going out to the dance floor, she was being drugged along. When she was dancing, it was like he was dancing with a broomstick. But then when Guido, when she sees Guido, she's looking all around because he was the one who called her princess. So when that cake came out, And she saw on their princess, she knew that he was somewhere there. She was seeking for him. When they finally meet, did you even hear the expression that she met when Guido said, there you are? Or you are, no, you are here too. Did you hear what she, she kind of like made some like guttural noise. It just was like, uh, uh. 
but I think it's because she was just overwhelmed with love. Her body spoke something about this man who she saw in front of her. And it was a beautiful scene of them kissing, too. It was passionate, but beautiful. Their bodies spoke a truth there. Whereas when she was with the gentleman who she was supposed to be engaged to, her body did not speak truth whatsoever. There were many, many other um, pieces of uh, that film that spoke um, a real language of the body, whether it was truth or lies. Think of Judas in Mark 14.45. He betrays Christ with a kiss. His body speaks a language. Speaks a language of love, compassion, that he and Christ are brothers. But it's a complete lie. He betrayed Christ. His body did not speak the truth. Through lies of the body, we lose the original fullness of the image of God. Our vision becomes blind or obscured. And what, we're going to, what I'd like to speak about next is some of the lies that our bodies can speak, especially in the day and age within which we live. But to understand that, the basic premise that we need to understand is that we cannot understand any sexual ethics apart from the one flesh union, which is a sign of God's love. I, I was reading over this today, and for some reason that sentence just jumped right out at me, and I had to call Chris. I was like, Chris, you'll never believe. <laughs> I was just so excited. All sexual ethics will be understood and can only be understood through the love, the sexual love relationship between a man and a woman. To the extent, okay, let me repeat this again. We cannot understand sexual ethics apart from the one flesh union, which is a sign of God's love. To the extent that a man and a woman live together in love, they become a picture of the inner life of God. When a man and a woman are truly living in love, they reflect the inner life of God. That is just powerful. I think of St. Therese's parents. What a beautiful, beautiful couple they must have been. It's no wonder that they have so many saints and nuns and priests in their family. But what I'd like to briefly go over now is some of the lies that our bodies can speak. First off, fornication. Having sex outside of marriage. This goes along with adultery. When a married person has sex with someone other than their spouse. The language of their body in this, or as expressed in this sexual act, can only be honestly spoken to one's spouse. When spoken honestly, the two become one flesh. With fornication or adultery, that is not the case. That is not what their bodies speak whatsoever. Their bodies actually say, we are two and we remain two. Or even so much with adultery, we are two, but not really. I'm completely lying to you because I've actually given myself to somebody else. I think those two are pretty straightforward. Some of the other lies that we will get into are not. For example, contraception. Basically, what you are saying with contraception is, or you're speaking with your body, I'm totally committed to you, so much so 
that I am willing to give you my very person in this most intimate of ways. But with contra- contraception, the couple says that they give themselves, but actually, I refuse to give you all of myself. I won't give you my fertility, and I won't receive yours. There is a lie. Their bodies are speaking a lie. Instead of becoming one, they actually bring a barrier between the full love and gift of self. They also shy away from commitment. Why? Because what does a child say? A child speaks permanence. It says, I'm permanent, so you two should be as well. I think that is so awesome. That little kids, just their body alone, speak something so much of the relationship of the husband and the wife. It speaks of the sacrament, of the permanence, of the beauty. A condom says, I should protect myself from you. We should protect ourselves from our enemies, not from our spouses, not from our spouse's fertility, or the child that may result from a union of love. The next, pornography. I just want to read to you uh, a few um, statistics that I have found very staggering. These are probably about three years old, so um, they're probably a little outdated. But basically, a child's exposure to pornography, the average age of the first internet exposure to pornography is eight years old. Eight years of age. Nearly one-third of children from age 8 to 18 have a computer in their bedroom. And one in five have an internet connection with that. The, larger, the largest consumer of internet pornography is the age group of 12 to 17 years old. 12 to 17 years old. I'm not going to go into many of the other details about pornography. But I will tell you this. The size of the industry, they make $57 billion worldwide a year. Porn revenue is larger than all combined revenues of all professional football, baseball, and basketball franchises. U.S. porn revenue exceeds the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC, which is only $6.2 billion. Again, they make $57 billion worldwide a year. Um, I'm not from South Dakota. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And uh, as a kid growing up in the, in the city, pornography was definitely something that I was exposed to. Moving here to small South Dakota, I would never have thought that that would be an issue as it is. But nowadays, if you are driving on 90, or if you're driving on 29, it's pretty hard to miss all the billboards advertising the pornography places that we have here in our own city. This is a huge, huge tragedy, and one that will continue to suck our children into and have them speak lies and speak lies to them. Now, why is pornography a lie? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward, but basically it objectifies a person. 
It gives a body without a soul, and that is not a person. Persons are meant to be loved, not used. Porn is a counterfeit to love because there is no one involved. It's a complete disrespect of others and of self and actually speaks of a complete immaturity on the part of that person who is not willing or able to commit to another or to even expose their very heart to another. Instead, they try to do it in a fantasy type of way. Same thing goes for masturbation, which is also a lie and is typically always related with pornography. Masturbation trains a person to be selfish. It's the direct antithesis of who God is and created us to be. It is not a total gift of self. Instead, it is completely selfish. Finally, the last lie that I would like to talk about is that of homosexuality. And here, I want to talk about the act, not the tendency, because there is a difference. By the very nature of a man and a woman, their bodies, their sexual organs, speak of reproduction. Some may argue that there is a free exchange of love between a same-sex couple. But regardless, they are not fruitful, they are not a total gift of self, and never can be, and they are not faithful to God and His plan for love. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that homosexual tendencies are not freely chosen, and though they are disordered, they are not sinful in and of themselves. That is the differentiation between homosexual acts and homosexual tendencies. It also speaks in the Catechism of how we need to be aware of the difference of that. Homosexuality is a complete lie. Just by reading the stories of creation, we see how man was not made for man, nor woman for woman. They can never complement each other the way God has asked them to complement one another, just by their very physical being. So, these sexual sins or these lies cause us to doubt whether our body is still capable of forming the true self-giving communion that God intended. Think about that for just a moment. The lies that we live, and they may be just very subtle, they cause us to doubt whether the body is capable of forming the true self-giving communion that God intended. Instead, through these sexual sins, we experience shame. And Satan absolutely loves this. He creates a cycle where we live a lie, we are ashamed of that lie, we feel disconnected from God, so therefore we do not go back to God to receive His forgiveness, and instead fall into a greater pattern of sin. Now, that is the beautiful, uh, that's the reason that God has given us the beautiful gift of confession, or what is one of my professors, professors called the medicine box, where we can restore our relation or communion with God. Don't be confused, though. Shame doesn't arise from our body or from sexuality itself. 
but from the wounds inflicted on the spirit by sin. Shame is a response to lust. And it aims at protecting us from consequences. Shame is a response to lust. And it aims at protecting us from consequences. So, we've talked about a few heavy things tonight. Um, and at first, that's all I was going to talk about tonight. And then I thought, wow, that's going to be a real depressing thing. Um, so I just felt as I was praying about this, that what I would like to speak about just real briefly is the battle for our hearts that Christ has gone through. We are not left, our world is not left to such depravity. Although our culture may speak of these lies and embrace these lies, we still have hope. Hope in Christ. Because Christ is battling day in and day out for our hearts. On a very side note, we did Theology of the Body for discipleship camp this summer. And during this talk of language of the body, um, we had five people get up and speak about some of the lies that they had experienced themselves, whether it was pornography or masturbation or sex before they were married. And the kids, we had about 150 high schoolers there, and they were pretty much blown away. They didn't realize they were going to come to a church camp and talk about these sort of things. But the freedom that was experienced after a deep, honest, truthful look at themselves and hearing the truth spoke to their hearts was absolutely amazing. And the battle that Christ won for their hearts just through this camp was amazing. Many, many of the kids came to the counselors and talked about their own struggles, whether it was pornography or whatever. And they were also given the gift of being able to go to confession. And many of the kids did. But it was only because they heard the truth. They heard the lies, and they could differentiate between the two of them. So we do need to know so that we can counter this culture within which we live. But we also need to remember that Christ is battling day in and day out for our hearts. By becoming a gift, the human person fulfills the deepest meaning of his existence. I'll repeat that. By becoming a gift, the human person fulfills the deepest meaning of his existence. I think of Mother Teresa when I think of this. What a gift she was. She was not married. What a beautiful, beautiful gift she was. For those of you who may have seen the human experience that we had here, I guess it was two weeks ago, that also spoke very much to me about this gift, about these two young men who travel throughout the world to kind of answer the question, what is life all about? What is the human experience? And they came to that realization through the gift of themselves to others. The gift of themselves to those in the AIDS colony that they, vi that they visited, or the children's hospital. They came to see and to know and to love God and to understand themselves in light of that. Christ. The Word became flesh. He came as a gift for us to capture our hearts. Think of the gift of His body, the Incarnation. As Christmas approaches, think of Christ as a tiny baby, completely dependent upon humanity to take care of Him. Think of his beaten and bruised and bloody and broken body that was for you. If 
you've not seen the passion of the Christ, that would be one way to see how his body spoke a very powerful language. So powerful was Christ's nonverbal promise of love made to us through the language of his body that it has become the standard visual aid in the Catholic Church. The crucifix is the preeminent symbol of love. A complete contradiction. Something so brutal, but yet something so beautiful. In conclusion, our hearts have become a battlefield between lust and love, with Christ on one side and the world on the other. As lust gains ground, our hearts become hardened towards persons. We see them as objects. On the other hand, as our hearts become pure, we see the face of God in all around us, and we only desire their sainthood. Ask yourself this question. Do I want to be holy? Do I want the person next to me to be holy? Am I going to lead someone closer to Christ by the way my body speaks? Am I showing Christ's complete gift of self to my spouse by using contraception? Lies of the body aren't always obvious. G.K. Chesterton was famous for saying, even the man knocking at the door of a brothel is seeking God. That is why we need to be very cautious. Sometimes these lies are under the cover of strong emotion. We see that with those who struggle with same-sex attraction. And they disguise themselves as love. Still, they remain selfish to the core. Watch over your heart, place it in the heart of Christ, and you won't go astray. Let's close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, we thank you for the gifts of our bodies, for the gift that you have given us to see you through those around us, through our very self. We ask that our hearts would be ever drawn closer to you and all those who have gone before us, who have struggled with lies of their body, that they would pray for us as we prepare one day to meet you. May all we encounter see in us the truth through the language of our body. May they see and come to know you in all of your goodness, in all of your truth, and in all of your beauty. And dear Mother Mary, as you led St. John to the foot of the cross, we pray for your intercession as well, that as we look upon the body, of the crucified Christ, that we will realize that we are made in his image and likeness to glorify him. We end up by praying, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. So, I guess it's time for Q&A. I'm not sure if I'm really ready for that, but that's okay. Or you can just go eat more food. <laughs> what? Uh, we can do both as well. So, um, yes, April, is that correct? Oh. Okay. Oh, thank you.
Okay. I'm not really sure how to ask this question, but does the church teach that the homosexual tendencies are the way God created us? Or does the church teach that that's a sinful tendency like, um, say, um, being drawn towards pornography or any other kind of sinful behavior? Okay, the question was, does the church uh, say that a homosexual, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that a homosexual tendency is sinful? Um, would it be on the same par as, say, somebody who was drawn to pornography, for example? Okay. Um, basically, I think what your question is, is kind of nature versus nurture. Would that be correct? Okay. Um, that's a great question. Um, that is one, uh, well, I'll just go back to the catechism. The catechism says that homosexual tendencies in and of themselves are not sinful. They're disordered, but they're not sinful. Does that mean God created us that way? I think that that will be the question that will be... Um, that doesn't make any sense. Well, what you read from Genesis, when, when God created them male and female, uh -huh. and as you talk about theology of the body, that, yeah. that doesn't fit in at all. Chris and I just had this discussion. Chris, you can chime in. Um, there are a couple of schools of thought on that. Um, basically, there is a school of thought that says, you know, so a, a child born into a family can have uh, homosexual inclinations at some point in time developed, um, maybe even before they're, they're rational. But as far as a strict across the board saying whether that is nature or nurture, um, I don't really think there's a definitive answer. Correct, Chris? The other thing, though, April, um, we all, we're all born disordered because of our fallen nature. Some people might have the disorder of homosexual mm -hmm. tendencies, if it is, in fact, a, a nature thing. Um, but we all, I mean, all of us have some disorder that we're born with because of original sin. Uh, so the fact that somebody's born, may be born, with a tendency towards homosexuality isn't, and it doesn't say anything more against God than does the fact that I'm born with a tendency to lie. And you know, th that, I had to take a long time to actually just pray and think about that, because for me, I thought basically somebody with a same-sex attraction had like a check mark against their name, so they were like one step closer to hell. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm saying that kind of bluntly. But what I ended up having to realize is exactly what Chris said. Just because somebody has that tendency does not dispose them any closer to hell than anybody else. And it, if anything, it can be a cross that they can bear actually for their, their, saint, their, their sainthood. Um, some of the studies that I have done on this subject myself um, one of which talked about um, same-sex attraction being um, a relationship addiction is how they term this. And they talked about it in regards to what they call as reparative therapy. Now there's all kinds of controversy around that. Does it work? Doesn't it work? Is it appropriate or is it not? Um, with relationship addiction, basically what the theory is, is that at some point in time, uh, a young boy or a girl, uh, is attracted to the same sex because they are missing something from typically the family. They look to this person of the same sex uh, with admiration, respect, love, and at some point in time that love, that filial um, brother kind of love, moves from that to an erotic sort of love. And that's where it becomes disordered. Um, not, uh, yeah, disordered. And that's where the homosexual tendencies can arise, as well as once those are acted upon, basically what the person is doing is trying to validate their own sexuality through the sex 
of a person of their same sex. With, yeah, with therapy for that, as some have um, talked about, basically just having good relationships with those of the same sex. Now, that's a, just a, a nutshell. Um, there's a lot more that goes into that, but does that kind of answer your question? It's a tough one, though, I think. I think it's very tough. Yes, sister. Somewhat of a, maybe an answer to that. I'm a sister, and I've, I've studied a lot of this stuff. But my understanding is, um, Luke 19.11 says, Jesus said, there are those who are born that way. What way? One, one interpretation is incapable of marriage. Another one calls them eunuchs. Well, that used to be a horrible term, eunuchs. There are those who are born that way. There are those who are made that way. That's castration. There are those who freely choose, and I'm one of those, who freely choose for the sake of the kingdom. So I'm a eunuch. That was a horrible thing. <laughs> but I'm a eunuch. Okay. Uh, I'm not incapable of marriage. It's a free choice. So does God make people that way? Uh, that, you know, that, that's difficult. On the other hand, they're, they're discovering today an awful lot of stuff goes on in the womb. And the last pope did call for more studies of what goes on in the womb. And um, a, lot of, a lot of things can happen in the way that, that what that child picks up that can make, I think, could very well focus maybe on some, some of this type of thing. But anyway, that's my two cents worth. <laughs> I think there's a lot to still be learned uh, about same-sex attraction. <laughs> Um, probably one of the best sources that I have found is Exodus Ministries based out of Florida. They've done a lot of research um, and then some really uh, groundbreaking things. Father, uh, I said Father Paul Harvey, um, John. Father John Harvey um, wrote, uh, has written a, a very good book on um, uh, homosexuality and therapy for homosexuals um, as well. Yeah. That are so afraid and that feel condemned by the church um, that they don't understand why they feel the way they feel and they don't know what to do about it and they're scared they're going to be condemned to hell. And people don't understand, but if there's more education or more. Teaching coming mm -hmm. from the church, I think that would be very helpful mm -hmm. helpful for people yep. that are struggling with that. Because it, I mean, it is real. There's a lot of people that struggle with this. Yes. Obviously, mm -hmm. we can see that just by what's going on in California right now with um, Proposition 8 and all the marches and everything else that's going on. It is. It's a reality. And we, as church, need to be informed and as well as not, not only informed but not afraid um, not afraid to confront that because just like um, you know one thing I didn't go into is pornography addiction um, it's very serious and very real there are studies out now that pornography the viewing of pornography releases an endorse, endorphin in your brain that is basically uh, equivalent to smoking crack cocaine it's that addictive. That's why the statistic was eight-year-olds, um, most eight-year-old, well, whatever percentage that was, of eight-year-olds have seen pornography. That's the base age. Why? Because if they can get them that young, they'll have them for the rest of their life. So it's about informing ourselves. It's about being able to be compassionate to others and loving. But that love carries them to the heart of Christ where all things are made new as well as all things are made sense out of. Uh, can't just stop with the self. I think that's hard. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think that um, we do need to do a lot more um, in, in uh, being able to identify how to help and how to be there for those who struggle with that. So, Thanks for asking those questions. Yes, Alita. I have a couple things just along that, and I don't know if this was a good example, but um, someone had described it to me that if um, 
if you had a, were born with obsessive compulsive disorder, you would get help for that disorder. And that if you are born with some other disorder, you would get help for that. But uh, the trick was that the world does sees those things as a disorder, but they don't see, don't necessarily look at same-sex attraction as a disorder. And so I don't know if that if you, that seems like an accurate. It was helpful in my understanding yeah. of it anyway. I think you're completely right because of the fact that yeah, you know, if you have um, OCD, you do want to go get help, but it's because of. I mean, exactly what we were talking, or what I read there with that report from Reich um, about sexual pleasure, or, you know, that leads to happiness. So it's all this throwing off the chains of the church or um, tradition, um, natural law, doesn't even have to go with the church, um, throwing off all of that so that we feel good, so that we feel better. Um, and you see that that's becoming a real struggle in our society. Um, a real struggle. Uh, we are beginning to um, become more and more and more accepting of that and afraid to speak out the truth. Um, and not truth, I'm, I'm not saying truth in a harsh way, but just even the truth that this is not in your best interest and this is why. Um, the, the gay community is probably, they have been noted as being one of the most welcoming and inviting communities. And you know, St. John Bosco said, get the kids, he's using this in terms of kids, but get the kids to fall in love with you and they will follow you anywhere. I absolutely love that quote. I believe our society does a very good job at that. Our world does a very good job at getting the kids to fall in love with all kinds of things. Unfortunately, they're not the right thing. Look at the reality shows that we have going on now. I mean, the mixed messages that we're getting there. But I completely agree with your statement, very much so. What are you going to add something else? I just wanted to make another comment. I wanted to make the point about, I think it's really important for Catholics to love those people that have the homosexual tendency. Because I think so many of them experience, is even from people who are, quote, wonderful religious Catholics, whatever, mm -hmm. they have this sense that they are not accepted mm -hmm. and they're not going to be loved until they change. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be really careful with that because we don't really understand it completely. And I think those people, I think every, a lot of people, because it seems disgusting to a lot of people that they're like, ew, get away from me. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes across loud and clear to so many people mm -hmm. that have that tendency that they don't even want to be a part of the church, of any church. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I don't know. I just no, feel. I think you're very, you're right. You know, it's, it's, it's in many ways easier to have an alcohol or drug addiction and be accepted than to have, you know, exactly like you, when I read in the catechism that homosexuality was not sinful, but it was a disorder, I, immediate, I immediately thought disadvantage. And what I had to do is just take that and say, no, that is not what the church is saying at all. They are not saying that. St. Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh that he had to struggle with. Now, there's all kinds of thoughts about what that was. We have no idea what that was. But what we've got to look at and help people who struggle with this to look at this is a beautiful cross that they can bear for their own sanctity. Now, um, we can always do better. We can always do better. And I think that having groups, I know uh, Courage is, is a group. I don't know if there's one here in Sioux Falls, no? Um, well, that says something right there. Um, but Courage is a support group for those who struggle with same-sex attraction based in the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, and there are several other uh, ministries out there, um, some of which are not Catholic, which is unfortunate, um, but they still do, you know, try to get into that um, culture. Actually, I was just in Steubenville, Ohio last week. I went to the Franciscan University, and um, a young lady came up to me who taught totus to us here this past summer,
And she asked me if I had some literature on same-sex attraction. And I was like, yeah, I do. I have quite a few books. She's like, can I borrow them? Sure. I said, well, what, what are you, why? And Steubenville uh, is doing an outreach, a mission. They go to um, Chicago, and they go um, and they minister outside of the gay bars to um, gay prostitutes. I know, I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is awesome. Um, they're not afraid to go where you know, these people who feel rejected stay there, you know, because we don't want them to feel rejected. Christ did not come to reject anybody. Um, so I think you have some very good and valid points there as well. Good comments. So thank you. It's really quiet. Okay. Well, I'll end with just a funny story, okay? This is kind of theology of the body. Um, I work part-time at Eddie Bauer because my wife really likes the clothes so I can buy them for her. Um, <laughs> it's true. No, no, just kidding. Um, anyway, there was this one time where I ventured over into the women's side, which is something a man should never do if you're working in a clothing store. Anyway, of course, this woman found me and she's like, can you help me? And I was like, well, I have to say yes because I work here. So I said yes. And uh, she was looking at these uh, polo shirts. and. Um, they have this cutting on the outside of them, or what is it called? Sewing that makes them kind of concave, right? <laughs> what is it called? Well, right, but isn't there something that's in it called something? That cut? I don't know. Anyway, so she's holding it up, and I look at her and I go, oh, yeah, that, that's, that would look really nice on you. It would make you look slim because of the cut of the shirt, you know? That's all I meant. And her face, she looked at me like, and I was like, oh, I, I didn't mean that you're fat, you know? And so I was like, hang on, let me go get a woman and she can help you, because I just slaughtered this. Thank goodness the lady laughed at me. So there's my theology of the body joke for you for the night. Thank you very much for coming. God bless you guys.